You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and thank you, somewhat presumptively, for spending the next hour with me on a tour of the arts. I am so pleased that the Missouri Arts Council launched their new online featured artist program as not only does it give artists around the state the chance to be exposed to a statewide audience, but it also gives us the chance to meet artists from around the state who might otherwise be hidden from our view. So as we are at the beginning of March and the Missouri Arts Council just announced their March artists, I thought we'd take another trip around the state to meet people creating wonderful art in Springfield, Joplin, Kansas City and St. Louis. This week we'll be checking in with a storyteller, a metal sculptor, an abstract ceramic artist and a realist, borderline surrealist painter. Each time I open one of the featured artists' websites, it's like a whole new wonderland of art. Improbably balanced stainless steel monkeys, a painted box of toy cars and a half-eaten sandwich, an epic tale told in one-minute episodes, and urban landscapes translated into geometric abstracts. I hope you enjoy listening to these chats from around the state as much as I enjoy having them. So, if you are sitting comfortably... Let's head out. First stop today is St. Louis. Nathana Premachandra is a woman of many hats. She is a poet, a writer, a storyteller, public speaker, classical Indian dancer, and daughter of the founders of St. Louis's Dances of India Company, founded in 1976 and this year celebrating its 44th season of teaching and presenting Bharata Natyam Classical Indian Dance. Nathana, it is a delight to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Diana. I'm delighted to be here. Well, you are so steeped in the creative arts. It's hard to know where to start, especially as I know we could spend our whole time together talking about dances of India. So let me ask you this, first of all, if your creative self was a pie chart, what percentage of all of your many art disciplines are you? Wow, what an interesting question. So I think... um, I honestly think still like 60% I'm a writer for sure. I still think that's just me completely naturally. And I would have always done that whether or not I had a mother who's a dancer. And honestly, like growing up in high school and things, I never thought much of the dance. I thought, oh, it's just something my parents do, <laughs> you know. And um, so it's later on, I never imagined my wildest dreams. I would keep dancing and that one day I would run the company after my dad passed away a few years ago. So I think now I'd say maybe, um, yeah, maybe 60% writer, no, 50% writer, 40% dancer, and then like 
10% storyteller. But storyteller is actually in my writing and in my dancing as well. That's true. That's a crossover. And in the Venn diagram, the storyteller is kind of at the center and everything else crosses into it. Right, right. So you, you are the child of two cultures. You are a Brahmin girl born and raised in St. Louis and someone uh-huh. who, like me, has had the good fortune to live in other countries. You spent three years in England, I believe, a year in Paris, a year in Japan. And there is a line that I love in a story you wrote for the publication called Panorama, the Journal of Intelligent Travel, where you wrote about journeys taken in your father's Cadillac. And you wrote, I am so grateful to have grown up in two cultures, each as natural and self-evident to me as night and day. It seems to me what we need is balance, not a retreat into one's own culture, nor a blasé disregard of it. Tell me about that balance and what you carry with you from each culture. Yeah, well, perhaps a perfect example of this is some years ago, um, we danced in Springfield, Illinois, and we had never danced in Springfield before. And so as we drove out there, you know, and we were in my dad's Cadillac, right? And um, as we drove out there, you know, my mind just wandered and I thought of like all the all the wonderful Little House books I read as a kid, Little House on the Prairie. I love that series. And and that was just going through my head. And um, and the farm where Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote the books is actually near Springfield. So I was thinking about all that. It was in my head, memories of the stories. But also at the same time, like on the way back, um, it was twilight and I looked up at the stars and I was thinking about the different myths in India associated with the stars and, you know, the the myths of the like the goddess of the night sky and stars. And I was thinking about all of that. Then I realized how both elements were in my head without any contradiction or I mean, it was just a perfect balance, I thought. And then you feed into that, you know, time in England and time in Paris and time in Japan. And, and each time we spend time in other countries, we adopt a little bit of a custom that we like from there. <laughs> oh, for sure. I think so. Yeah. What have you brought with you from those other cultures? Wow, that's a fascinating question. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's ever asked me that. Um, let's see. I think... Um, so when I was in England, that's when I studied international relations and politics, and I realized it really wasn't for me. But I remember my overwhelming feeling of, of being in England was I had a strong sense of like coming home because my grandparents, you know, would talk to me about all the memories of the, the British in India and things. So I had such a familiarity with things like Cadbury's chocolate and <laughs> Edith Blyton novels, you know, things like that. So I felt very much at home and it, it just sort of expanded my identity, I guess, of being Indian abroad. Um, and France, so when I was in France, that was the first time I was on my own. And, you know, this is before the internet, right? So I was, um, I, I mean, like my first weekend studying in France, the, the metro went on strike, the post office went on strike. <laughs> so it was all this, you know, it was just getting used to a completely different way of living. But now looking back on it, I, I think just all I learned about the deep respect for art and literature. And I think that really came through for me from France. And in Japan, so when I lived there, the formality of behavior would sometimes be a little too much. It would be a little overbearing sometimes. The idea of being polite, right? Polite to others at all time. When I lived there, sometimes I would get to be too much. But when I went back to visit a few years later, I realized how much I really appreciated that. I love that formality. And I don't know if it's because I worked in retail so much and, and you know, dealing with and pe- most people are great, but sometimes people aren't right. And so I, I love I just love the formality of the culture, the respect 
it was really beautiful and and the respect towards everything towards eating towards your your dress all the traditional ideas of harmony I, I just found that beautiful well, tell us a little bit about classical Indian dance and what distinguishes Bharatanatyam dance from other classical Indian dance forms. So Bharatanatyam dance is the style of dance that's performed most frequently in India. Many of the dance styles are related to each other. And there's a text that's over 2,000 years old, give or take a couple of centuries, but it's called the Natya Shastra. And that text is really, it lays out the fundamentals of Bharatanatyam, the many different hand movements, the eye expressions, the stances of the body, all the footwork. And over the years, of course, it's evolved, but many of those basics are the same. And so um, Bharatanatyam is fundamentally actually about storytelling, you know, because Back then, of course, the great texts and myths of India, I mean, people didn't read them, right? So how would people know about them? Well, you could recite them orally, but most people wouldn't learn them orally in recitation like that, but they would see it in dance or hear it in music. And that's how these stories are so alive for so many years. So there are some differences between, for example, Bharatanatyam and Kuchipudi, that's another um, style of dance from South India, uh, difference in the in the rhythms and all that. But they all share some similarities. Well, in your role as both a dancer and a storyteller and a writer, you adapt and narrate stories for the Dancers of India performances. And I want you to tell us a little bit about Devi of the Ashes, which oh, is sure. Cinderella, right? Yeah, yeah. So oh, it is loosely based on Cinderella. But the concept of that is instead of Cinderella going to a ball and, you know, meeting her prince, I had the idea of, now this is a long word, but it's um, the Swayamvara. And the Swayamvara was an ancient ritual in India where princes would come to a palace and compete in different feats of strength to win the hand of a princess. And I love that, you know, and some of the stories of the Swayamvaras are just wonderful. So I had this idea where, in this case, the roles are reversed and Cinderella is the princess and she has a swayamvara where princes from all the land try to win her hand. But instead, she's in love with the lowly servant boy who works in the kitchen washing dishes and, you know, all that stuff. And then you added in more humor than you would find ordinarily in Indian dance, did you, to make it a, a more appealing to an American audience? Yes, yes. So, so it was really fun. Like I made all the princes who came to win the hand just really, what's the word? Um, fools. I mean, I just made them kind of, <laughs> it was fun. You know, I had them try to recite poetry and she's just shocked by what they say. So yeah, we, we definitely added humor. We always try to add humor in our performances. Um, the woman with whom I create our productions. Her name is Tekla Mehta, and she's an American married to an Indian. And she was my mom's first student. And she's a visual artist. And she and I like get together, like I'll, I'll have these ideas and we find music for it. And then she does a lot of the choreography and the staging. And she really loves bringing humor in it too. I just think that's important. I don't think it should be, I don't think dance should be too serious and too philosophical. <laughs> I'm sure that as in any art form, there are purists who think that modern adaptations should be outlawed. Did you get good feedback from your Indian audiences? Yeah, actually, most of the feedback was wonderful. In fact, the first year we did this, it was 2006, when I wrote in a, a script for a show, 
So I love George Gershwin, and I was listening to Rhapsody in Blue on the radio, and I thought, oh, how about Rhapsody for the Blue Gods? So we wrote a story about Krishna and Rama, who are Hinduism's deities who have like blue, blue shaded skin. And we set it to George Gershwin's An American in Paris and Rhapsody in Blue. And you wouldn't believe it. Like, we didn't know what people would think of that. But there's <laughs> a woman who works for the St. Louis Repertory Theater, um, Marsha Copeland, and she said, when I was watching your piece, like, I love Gershwin, but when I was watching your piece, I didn't even think about Gershwin. It just flowed together well. So we make sure about that, like, that our story works with the music and that we're respectful, you know, to both cultures. Well, another of the works of narration I want to ask you about briefly <laughs> is your retelling of the Sanskrit epic tale, the Ramayana. It's a massive tale, 24,000 verses, <laughs> which you are telling in one minute segments. This is fascinating. How, how many years is it going to take you to get through that? Oh, my gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, like, I, I don't know what I set myself up for, honestly. But I just had this idea because I, I love the classics. And you know, Indian kids grew up with the Ramayana, but many people really don't know really how it ends and the depth in it and how contemporary it is. I mean, most people think it has a happy ending, you know, the princess is kidnapped and Rama, the prince, rescues his wife and they're crowned king and queen, but that's not the ending. And um, there's a lot to it, actually. And the story of Rama's wife, Sita, is very contemporary in many ways. So, and I don't even know who reads these classics anymore. And so I thought, well, let me just try to retell it on Instagram. So I, I started it just a couple of weeks ago. And to my, like, and I did not know, right, who is going to watch it. But to my surprise, I have like, like there are a few people who, who watch the episode every time. I'm just delighted. So I'll just keep going as long as it takes me. <laughs> One minute segments are, are very easy to consume. It doesn't, it's not a big time commitment. Maybe you should start at the end and work backwards if no one's read the ending. <laughs> Everybody knows the beginning, but nobody knows the end. Oh my God, that's <laughs> such a good idea, actually. You know, at the end of his life, Rama thinks back on everything. And, yeah. As well as narrating stories and writing novels, you also write poetry. And I would love to have you read one of your works for us before we close. What have you chosen to read? Sure. Yes. Thank you so much for asking. So this is a poem that I wrote in May 2020 when we were still in lockdown and everyone was getting used to, you know, what a strange world we're in. And um, now, of course, it's just become like it's become habit. I can't imagine not wearing a mask anymore, you know? <laughs> so this is what I wrote in May 2020. While we send off the souls of loved ones, for they are loved ones, even if we have never met them personally, we thank doctors, nurses, janitors, bus drivers, delivery workers, mail carriers, grocery store clerks, first responders, and we spend much time alone, where we discover the tree near our window, the shapes of clouds in storms of evening light, the receptiveness of the ever-loyal earth. And if we are perfectly still, we can hear birdsong in our blood. That is beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, Natana, I feel like I could sit and talk with you for hours. <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Your questions have been so, um, I mean, I have not been on the radio a lot, I should say. But when I've been interviewed about our dance company, most people really don't know much about it. But 
you seem to know a lot already and it's amazing. So <laughs> I'm so glad to be talking with you. Well, if you would like to find out more about Dancers of India and their annual fall performance, check out their website at dancersofindiastlouis.org and to find out more about Natanas, Nartanas, Nartana. Perfect, perfect. perfect. You made a Spanish there. That's great. (laughs) More of Nartana's many pursuits, visit her new website at natanapremachandra.com. And Nartana, thank you so much for sharing some parts of your life with us today. Oh, thank you, Diana, for having me. It's been great. (laughs) Being an artist, rather like being an actor, is a harsh lesson in rolling with rejection, which is one of the reasons I am neither. I am too thin-skinned. But if you want to get your work accepted into art shows or festivals or purchased for public displays, you have to accept that for every yes, you'll likely get 10 no's. And that was a lesson that my next guest this morning, metal sculptor Doug Cox, had to learn the hard way. But thankfully, he pushed through. And today, his metal sculptures have been seen all around Missouri. Good morning, Doug, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning, Diana. Now, I am a dog person, so all it took for me to love your work was your seven-foot sculpture of the amazing blabadors of one dog doing a handstand on the other dog's front paws. It's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about that work. Well, thank you. Uh, Yes, that was um, Maggie and Rufus. We had a couple of labradors, and they had this way of kind of talking to each other it wasn't a bark or growl or anything it, but it was a uh, kind of a blabbing sound and my wife uh, coined the phrase the blabadors so i <laughs> i called them the amazing uh, blabadors maggie and rufus and uh, i ended up donating that to the southwest humane society describe it for us well it, rufus was a chocolate lab and uh, he's on the bottom holding his hands up and then uh, Maggie's doing the handstand off of his hands and uh, she's got one leg kicked out like she's trying to keep her balance and they were just wonderful dogs and I, I just wanted to do something for them and Maggie passed before the sculpture was done but Rufus got to see it. Oh that is sad and and then Another one that I love, I mean, who could not love a work called Barrel of Monkeys, which is on display in St. Joseph through, uh, through I think, this summer at least. What was the origin story for that work? Well, I had bought the barrel through work, and it was a wine barrel, about a 55-gallon barrel. And uh, I was, I was going to make a, a smoker or a grill out of it, and it set my barn for couple of years and I always had to move it every time I had to move the lawnmower to mow the yard and and kind of got tired of that but uh, ended up we moved to Republic about four years ago and I had a shop built and I always thought that that would be interesting in a sculpture of some sort and then I it finally dawned on me that uh, it would be wonderful for a barrel of monkeys and so that's what I ended up using it for. I cut the top off of it and the bottom off of it. The bottom so it would drain whenever it rained pretty good. And the top so I could get a, a monkey inside the barrel holding the monkeys up like he was a lead guy holding everything up, you know. And But it, and that one turned out really well, I thought. 
Well, let's back up a little bit. I know you took some drawing classes in high school, but then your career went in a different direction and you've spent more than 25 years working, I think, for the Paul Mueller company, which makes processing equipment like solar milk coolers and medical technology. How did your second career as a sculptor get started? I started uh, making small sculptures and uh, I work in a plant that really built some big things. I even have built 100,000 gallon silos and stuff too. And uh, I've worked for a few shops, but Paul Mueller has been the longest I've been with the company. And uh, I started doing these smaller sculptures and I enjoyed doing them. And I always thought they would look good big. And whenever I started doing sculptures, I got a hold of some wooden puzzles, kids' puzzles. And uh, I just started to enlarge them from about, oh, 12 inches to about seven foot. They are kind of interlocking. They're, they're not regular puzzles. They're interlocking wooden puzzles. And they're the dinosaur. I haven't done the dinosaur yet, but I'm thinking about it. But I did a spider and a praying mantis and a few other things like that. I guess one of the good things about working for a company that builds processing equipment from stainless steel is you have a ready-made source of raw materials. Are they your main supplier? Yes, they have been so far. They're uh, really good about allowing us to take home some scrap and I'll accumulate quite a bit before I'll uh, start a bigger sculpture. And I, I've seldom ever had to purchase anything. I, and it's such a big company that sometimes they'll throw out things that's been in the warehouse for 20 years and, and I, I can make use of it. But I mean, stainless steel, despite its name, I mean, it can rust if it's exposed to the elements. So I'm curious how you either avoid your sculptures rusting or if you want that to be part of the aging process for your works. They don't really rust too bad depending on the how you finish the piece and also if you haven't hit it accidentally with a carbon grinding tool accidentally and uh, they do pretty good and I have gone up with scotch bright and cleaned some of my pieces to take the rust off it's kind of just a surface rust it's not like a carbon steel that will continue rusting Tell me a little bit about the process, how you how you start from an idea to getting to a, a seven foot, 14 foot piece of metal sculpture. Do you start with a maquette? I do sometimes. A lot of times I do. I uh, will make things out of cardboard and put them together and uh, kind of live with that for a little bit and see if I like it or add to it. And sometimes I'll draw it out. And other times uh, it's just as much fun to just start throwing things together. You know, I kind of have a rough idea of what I want to do, but the cardboard models, maquettes are great because you can take the tape off of them and use them as patterns on the sheet metal and burn it out with a plasma cutter after that, and clean that up and start welding it together. So that's, that's a good way of doing it too. What is the most complicated part of creating a, a seven-foot sculpture. I, I know you are inspired by Alexander Calder, famous for his mobiles. And, and so your works have a similar sense of a kind of a mathematical sense of balance. 
Is that tricky? Like, what is the most complicated part of, of building one of those sculptures? You really want them to be structurally sound. And uh, I have had to backpedal a few times by using too thin of gauge of metal. I have a piece that uh, tie in timber called uh, Do Something Good with Superpowers. And I started out with a 12 gauge back on the big dog, then realized that he's going to be supporting so much weight above. So I had to change that out to uh, seven gauge, which is almost twice as thick as uh, 12 gauge. But uh, yes, you think about that and you I've used repads also. That's kind of uh, adding more beef. Uh, on. It's kind of like scabbing a piece on to make it more sound and more solid onto a 12-gauge piece. And uh, we're in grinding it where no one really can tell unless, that's, unless they're a sheet metal man and that's what they're looking for. <laughs> Do you get fan mail from sheet metal men? Well, I've, I've actually had a few people... Uh, email me and tell me about them and i'm in a uh, on facebook uh, sheet metal workers art website and i've posted a few things and i get some feedback and they ask me questions on some stuff and it's it's pretty good and i've had uh, some artists contact me asking me about uh, stainless for a base or a little help on uh, structure of something is that sense of alexander's Calder style sense of improbable balance is that is that fundamental to your work do you want people to behold it and think how is that monkey staying up there yes and also i don't know i have this uh i don't know how i would phrase it but i have this thing of even when i bring home groceries uh cans canned goods i'll stack three or four or five of them together and <laughs> it kind of bothers my wife at times but uh i like seeing things stacked and uh, I've done that on the last three or four, and I really didn't come to that conclusion till about uh, two or three months ago. That's something that I really like doing in my sculptures. Besides Alexander Calder, who, who are you inspired by? Klaus Oldenburg, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. I really like his stuff. He can take uh, just an ordinary object, enlarge it, and it's, it's, he, he makes it look fantastic, extraordinary. He's the artist that did the huge badminton shuttlecock in front of the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, right? Yes, uh, Birdie. And he's done a lot of other interesting pieces. And then uh, there's another guy, David Smith. He passed away quite a few years ago, but uh, it was kind of my introduction to stainless steel sculpture, his Cubi series. I only had about three semesters at uh, SMS, but... Uh, the local college here in Springfield, but I liked his work a lot. Um, it, like I said, that was my introduction to any stainless steel work. And I thought that was pretty cool that that was out there because I was only familiar with bronze and Cortin steel and a few other things like that. But I liked his style and uh, he was an interesting man. I noticed from reading about your works that you often loan them to cities for sculpture walks or to businesses. Like you said, your your do something good with your superpowers is on display outside a brewery in Springfield. And so my immediate thought is that you must be constantly repairing 
wear and tear. They go out, you loan them out, they come back, they've probably got a little bit of weather damage on them. Is that just a kind of a like painting a bridge, a constant process for you? Well, it's a fun process. I seldom ever had to repair anything. I only cleaned them up. And I like cleaning them up and making them look like a shiny penny whenever they go out to be uh, exhibited again. And another practical question I have is how do you move the works around? I mean, some of them are 500 pounds. Well, I have a, uh, a winch in the uh, shop here and I built in my shop and it'll get it in the truck. And I have lawnmower ramps, aluminum lawnmower ramps that I'll take with me and I'll slowly pull them with a come along, crank them on and a come along if I don't have the winch. But uh, it works out pretty good for unloading also. Uh, most of the places I've uh, installed, I've had uh, at least a helper or two. So that helps with the uh, lawnmower ramps and stuff to slide them down. But uh, I've had to use a crane, overhead crane, I mean a crane truck one time. I thought it was just going to be a little unsafe for uh, about five or six of us to catch uh, three or four hundred pounds coming down real fast. So I thought that was the safest route to go. What are you working on now? What's the next big project? It's called uh, Mick Takes a Holiday. It's a, a big frog, and he's going to be 32 inches tall. And I've used a, uh, a pipe and cut it at angles where there's three transitions where it looks like an elbow. And uh, I put the Rolling Stones lips and tongue logo on it. And uh, he's going to have uh, two flowers coming up beside him. And uh, they will crisscross, so it adds stability to the piece. And then there's going to be a spider web above the crisscross of the flower stems. And then on one top of the uh, flower... Uh, I'm going to have a butterfly on it. It's going to be about 12 foot tall, and it'll probably weigh, weigh probably around 600 pounds or something like that. Does having your sculptures appear in sculpture walks, does that help you to sell them? I mean, you obviously have to price the works at multiple thousands of dollars because <laughs> you've put so many hours into them. How how do they sell? Well, I'm still working on that. <laughs> <laughs> And I figured the more places uh, I get them out, more people see them, that someone is going to like them and, and grab them up, I hope. Well, if you would like to see Doug Cox's work in real life, there are a number of works currently on public display around Missouri. The Barrel of Monkeys is in St. Joseph and Do Something Good With Your Superpowers is outside the Thai and Timber Brewery in Springfield. Doug, thank you so much for telling us about your work. Diana, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. I feel like it's never terribly fashionable being into realism in art, but as my art world friends will attest, I am not, generally speaking, drawn to abstract art, but artists who can paint with photorealistic accuracy and who also have an eye towards the surreal will find me spellbound in front of their paintings. And so I found a new art love when I opened the website for my next guest this morning, a painter in Joplin, Missouri, who describes herself 
himself as a contemporary realist and at times borderline surrealist still life and figurative painter, Natalie Wiseman. Natalie, hello. What a delight to have you on the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here today. I love, love, love your work. I've spent so long on your website this week. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> do you like abstract art? I do. I'm always drawn to the opposite of what I do. I really always appreciate the spontaneity because that's really not me at all to be spontaneous. Something that's really got aggressive paint application, that type of abstraction, I really love because that's not my style at all. Well, there is so much going on in all of your works. They are crammed full of objects layered upon each other, quirky juxtapositions, lots of food remnants, like a half-eaten sandwich in a box full of toy cars and, and a rotary phone. And I'm curious, how does each work start? It can come about one of two ways. Sometimes it's just one object will really grab my attention, you know, like a glass object that I really want to capture the sheen or the sparkle or or a beat up piece of cardboard that really has great wrinkles or tears or imperfections. That's what I love. So it can come from one of those type of objects, or it can be a, a phrase that immediately presents kind of a mental image for me. Well, I did want to ask you about about your titles because they are fabulous and funny and quirky. And I wondered whether you start with a, a painting's birth cycle, whether you start with a title sometimes or whether the title appears at the end of your painting when you're standing back and beholding it. You know, sometimes it comes both ways. Sometimes the <laughs> Sometimes the title will come first and I have to almost illustrate that title. And then sometimes the title just isn't coming and I'll think about it and think about it and I'll set the piece aside for a week or so and I'll come back to it and I'll play around with a couple of titles that don't really work. And then all of a sudden I get that little light bulb almost visibly above <laughs> my head, I think, and I'm like, of course, that's the title. It's the title. It was a title all along. I just didn't realize it. Do you have like a focus group of your husband and some friends and you run titles past them and they, they you know, check which ones they like the best? Yes. All my <laughs> enablers, um, I have to call in sometimes for help and they know me well enough that they know what what I'm reaching for, for the most part. <laughs> well, you are a mother of three and you write that you credit marriage and motherhood in the evolution of your art and its themes. So take us back to the pre-marriage and pre-motherhood Natalie Wiseman portfolio. How was it different? Okay, pre-marriage, I was in college. We married while we were still in college. But most of my work were large figurative pieces. And I, I was you know, fixated on artists like Robert Rauschenberg and Joseph Cornell. So I had really large figurative pieces and then really small, intimate little box assemblages that had little paintings in the back. So both of those kind of things I still reach back to. Um, but I think at the time I didn't have the skill set to really do the concepts justice. So now I 
the evolution has been more trying to get the painting to stand on their own without the the added assemblage part because I even had added assemblage type things added to my big figurative canvases and then when the kids came along you can't help but be surrounded by all this new stuff just layers and layers of toys and food and just day-to-day you know objects so I painted murals for a really long time. This is kind of an aside, but when my kids were little, I painted murals and it was always in people's homes or businesses. So it was pretty much an assignment, um, not what I was painting for my own enjoyment. So when I finally got back to painting for my own enjoyment, I just naturally tended to go towards those things that I was surrounded by every day. And then they kind of took on little symbolism, uh, you know, of their own, the objects. And then it led into more trains of thought. And so that's kind of how they evolved. Your paintings on the surface are so joyous. They're bright. They're funny. They've got these hilarious titles. There's pink flamingos and pieces of cake and rubber chickens and gummy worms and lingerie. (laughs) There's almost a Richard Scarry sense of wonder and discovery in your works. But I'm wondering, do you paint from a joyous place or is there a scream in every work? (laughs) Generally speaking, they're joyous uh, (laughs) because the objects themselves can't help but make you feel good or get back to a place from your childhood or a memory. But like I said, they're, they're kind of trains of thought or streams of consciousness. So I connect dots between objects and experience. And so every once in a while, there is a darker theme, maybe laying under the surface. But I try not to make it too overt because I I want people to be drawn in. Then if they connect those dots and maybe get there to what I was thinking it's probably not going to happen exactly like I was thinking, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, I I leave a lot to the viewer because I, I don't want to spoon feed everybody everything because I, I think that takes away from the experience of viewing art. Well, let's talk about a couple of specific works that are on your website. As almost every work I look at makes me want to ask you a string of questions. There is a work with a white lacy bra lying atop a blue scarf and a partially sliced honeydew melon and an ashtray full of lipstick smeared butts. And it's fabulously called No, We Can't Elope. That must have a great backstory. Well... I don't know how great it is because the visual of the cantaloupe kind of sparked that that idea. So just the play on words of can cantaloupe and <laughs> I didn't even really put that together. I was thinking it was a honeydew melon. So so sometimes it could be that simple that and I'll it'll take me down a rabbit hole to, you know, the the final image. So then it kind of took on a um a vintage honeymoon kind of a feel, <laughs> I, you know, somewhere around there. 
but I'm vintage, so I <laughs> I lean towards those those kind of romanticized vintage images and ideas. In another work, you have a beautiful portrait of a man in a white vest top sitting in front of a pair of scales, on one side of which is a bottle of Dom Perignon or champagne of some sort. On the other scales dish is a handful of fortune cookies, and the work is called Fortune or Fame. Tell us the story behind that work. Okay, that is a figurative work that is of a friend of mine, a co-worker who I worked with for several years, and I'm really, really trying to expand on my figurative works. So I asked him if he would be so kind as to pose and sit for this idea that I have. And he was great and said, no problem, because he knew me. And I'm sure he was curious what I was going to (laughs) come up with. But He was kind of at a crossroads and trying to make some personal decisions. So I kind of used the symbol, well, pretty literal uh, idea of the the scale. And then we worked together and we we sold wine, actually, for several years. And so the Dom Perignon bottle just naturally was a symbol of success. And then... The fortune cookies, we made it, it was almost a daily ritual to get Chinese food and read our fortunes out loud. We had a giant bottle of just our little fortunes. And I love the visual of the fortune cookies. I've used them several times because I just really like that plastic wrapper and everything that just goes into that little package. Do you have a particular work that is your favorite child or or one that you feel has a really compelling story? It's hard to have a favorite (laughs) (laughs) because you're in such a different place mentally for each one that they're all kind of significant in their own way because you really work out some psychological things in the process. So I think any of them that involve my children are naturally significant. It's very difficult for me to have a favorite. There's a little bitty piece called Biscuit Ridge. And it's just a couple of little biscuits and some little plastic cowboys and a jar of jelly. And that was one of the first pieces that really the narrative quality of and what I wanted to do combined with the images really gelled for me. So that one is a little bit significant because it was the start of the path. You are a member of the International Guild of Realism, and I was interested on their website, they write, we know that as a greater number of art lovers have access to high quality realism, the value of these paintings will increase, not just in monetary terms, but in appreciation, understanding and international attention. Is realism underappreciated and undervalued? I think maybe it's just gone generally out of style for all these what's seen as more contemporary works. Um, I'm not sure why, because I think realism is more accessible. People immediately understand what it is. They might not understand all the underlying themes or symbols or that sort of thing, but they know that 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 apple or whatever it is, is that's what it is. They don't have to 
interpret too much. But I think purchasing a piece of realism, people have to think about my work for a really long time before they purchase it, maybe a couple of years sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's a commitment to that subject, and especially mine. Mine, I always say mine don't match the couch. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they just don't. So you have to really uh, be drawn to maybe one of the little items that I've added or something like that. I think abstract art is easier to live with because it can match the couch. It can just appeal to you on an emotional level, but you don't have to be committed to the ideas or the the subjects specifically. So maybe, maybe that's why. Gosh, I could I could just choose ten works on your website if I had the money and 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 buy them right now without thinking about it for five minutes. I really enjoy people's initial response to them because usually a a smile breaks out on their face and they have to look at it for a little bit. So <laughs> I do enjoy the seeing people's responses to it. Well, you can peruse Natalie's work on her website at natalieweismanartist.com. And if you are passing through Tulsa, Oklahoma, you can find her work at Lovett's Gallery. Natalie, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. I've really enjoyed it. When ceramic artist Kevin Umania is working in his studio, he listens to ABBA. And really, that was all I needed to know to be sure that we could be great friends. But as well as being an ABBA fan, Kevin is known for his abstract geometric paintings and, more recently, ceramics, which he creates in a studio space he shares with his ceramic artist partner, Emily Reinhardt, in Kansas City's Crossroads District. Hello, Kevin, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. I have to start with ABBA, as I have been a lifelong fan. How is the music of ABBA shaping your work habits and output? Well, ABBA is a new fascination that I just got into. Uh, I never really gave them a listen until this year. And I think it's really just helped me keep myself in focus. And the music qualities in the music is just outstanding and like every song is a hit and so in the studio i'm usually just in a good mood and in the rhythm and everything just seems to work out when i'm listening to abba <laughs> do you have a favorite track i have several i think every song's a hit but i like honey honey and you know the traditional dancing queen is amazing <laughs> that is the theme tune for my life dancing queen <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, I, my studio is in the basement right now. And so I can dance as much as I want to without anyone judging me. <laughs> I will not be judging you if you're dancing to ABBA. <laughs> so you were originally from Los Angeles. You studied printmaking in San Francisco and picked up painting and woodworking while you were in New York. How is it that you ended up working in ceramics in Kansas City? Well, my partner, Emily Reinhardt, she actually got me into it. Uh, She's an amazing ceramist, and we were doing a long-distance relationship for a while. And so every time I would visit Kansas City, she'll allow me to pick up some clay and start molding forms. And I just really got hooked on the chemistry side of ceramics, and, and now I'm just doing it every day, and um, along with my painting practice and everything else. Uh, so just uh, inspiration from Emily. 
Well, you are better known, I believe, as an abstract geometric painter. But tell me about that transition to clay. What is it that inspires you from clay? It just pretty much allows me to relinquish control from from what I usually do. Um, my paintings are very easily uh, they're strict to rules, and it really depends on how the sketches are. And with ceramics, it allows me to. Uh, let loose and let the clay take control and the glazes and there's just so much texture on the the surface that I'm not really capable of achieving in painting. Is part of the fascination kind of the experimentation that you, because you're new to it, you don't quite know how the glazes are going to react or is it the, the chemical component that you don't want to know how it's going to react? What is really grabbing you about clay? Pretty much both. I mean, every day it's a surprise, and I I have a thirst for knowledge. So I'm like obsessively, always, constantly trying to learn more about the the practice and how to manipulate it to the senses and move the viewer. And sometimes I would see something that I create, and I'm amazed, and I love it, and instantly I'm hooked. And then sometimes uh, there's frustration that comes with ceramics, and but that also encourages me to fix the issues and strive for better. Um, I think it's it's a it's a good character building exercise, and there's a lot of lessons that come with it, just on life in general. And it's very spiritual practice that I I'm just relaxed when I do it, and it's very therapeutic. Are you not as relaxed when you're working on canvas or in paint? I think because I've been doing it for so long, every time I approach painting, I expect it to look a certain way. And there's there's something about my OCD that doesn't allow me to, um, if I go outside the line, I feel frustrated and I just can't really let loose. There's a lot of control, but since working in ceramics, I brought that over to painting and it's opened up new ways and new perspectives of how I view my paintings now. And so, yeah. I'm an inside the line painter <laughs> too. Not a painter. I mean, as a child, I couldn't stand going outside the lines. That's it. It's over. I've gone outside the lines. I have to start again. Yeah. So I can see in your work a sense of architecture and urban design, and you also cite mythology and literature and historical motifs as influences. How how do those manifest in your work? Well, I believe that an artist's uh, job is to depict uh, how they view the world. And for me, I love this idea of intersecting and breaking down forms and then building something anew from that, something that visually engages and challenges the viewer. And, and I'm like a history buff. And so... Sometimes it comes to me at the end of a, of the work where I'm like, oh, I was definitely inspired by this building in Copenhagen, or, or I've been listening to the history of Roman uh, history for eight hours. I definitely can see how it's affected this painting that I've been working on. And sometimes it's just I lean towards the isolated and objective, and my work aims to create a dialogue with memory and nostalgia and the landscape that I constantly see on everyday basis.
How has the spaciousness and the big skies of the Midwest influenced your artwork? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I'm constantly influenced by like modern buildings, and I'm surprised when I first arrived here. I have amazing friends here, and they've driven me all around town to find Bauhaus buildings that were created by Marcel Breuer. And so there's like, I realized that there are hidden gems here in the Midwest and I've never traveled. I mean, I've traveled Europe, all over Europe and, and uh, Canada, and I've never been to the Midwest. And so I, I'm approaching Missouri with fresh eyes and I'm every day I'm learning new things and the museum here are insanely incredible. And there's just so many Franklin rights here that I, I have still yet to see and, and, there's a lot of hidden gems here that I was surprised when I first got here. I remember when I first came to the Midwest, that sense of the sky space, this hugeness of sky. I'd never lived anywhere where there was so much sky. Does that find its way into your work too, as well as those urban influences? Yeah. I mean, the other day I was telling Emily, I, was like, I can't believe I'm looking at stars right now. It's just astonishing how much space I have here compared to New York. And I feel like I can breathe and spread out. And the driving culture is new to me here because I'm so used to taking the train. And I'm glad that we were able to drive 30 minutes away from the city and find ourselves in a farmland. And you can see really the gracious view of the world. And yeah, I'm in love with the nature here. Well, there is a body of work on your website called Pocket Symphony, which you completed a few years ago whilst living in New York. And it's a book of 40 abstract paintings. Tell me a bit about Pocket Symphony. Yeah, it's a project that I did right after returning from Europe from the first time. And I kind of just locked myself up in my room for six months and was working on Pocket Symphony. All I had was music to entertain me. And so... I decided to make this book that follows the structure of a symphony where the symphony starts off. It starts off really slow and simple. And then towards the climax, it gets a bit complex and vibrant and things are clashing among each other. And I think I was inspired a lot by Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and how he constructed his songs. And so I wanted to approach it in a way where how can I construct a painting to to seem like a symphony? So there's a lot of musical qualities that go into the forms and colors. And uh, they took a lot of experimentations of how each color can invoke an emotion. So it was a good exercise for me. And so I decided to publish it. And were you listening to symphonies specifically while you were creating this work or were you listening to more contemporary music? I was listening to all range of classical and, and pop. So it's very like, you know, Satie and uh, Mozart and then also a lot of ABBA and, <laughs> and uh, uh, a lot of contemporary pop songs by Blood Orange or... or uh, so it was a good mix of everything. And I think I tried to title each of the pages to the songs and, and the artists. 
So now you occupy a huge space in Kansas City that contains separate studios for you and Emily, a shop called Duet, and a curated gallery space called the Ecru Project. What is your vision for this series of spaces in the Crossroads District? Yeah, so me and Emily run the Ecru Project, and then Emily and her partner, Sasha Satilian, they run the Duet, or Duet. And so we always, Emily and Sasha always wanted to own a store that sell art and objects and and so and i was looking for a studio so a building came up and we just jumped on it and it took several months we just opened up in around black friday it took several months to build out and like have our visions come to life and we're excited to have a lot of artists and and walk-ins come in and get inspired and create this dialogue within our community and just, I've had a lot of curators come in and, and I just had a pleasure talking to them and trying to get moving and have something to astonish other artists here. Uh, I mean, we're always trying to welcome artists to come in and just create a dialogue with us. And it's like a safe heaven for creators and designers. So the A Group Project is a curated gallery that you're creating and you focus on contemporary emerging and underrepresented artists so have you you've had two shows already is that right we just had our first um our first show uh, late january and so for the first show i decided to get a lot of artists from around the north american region so we have an artist from winnipeg canada and we have an artist from oaxaca mexico and then portland and new york and i just kind of wanted to introduce the Kansas City locals to artists from outside and then I want pretty much I want each artist to have communication with one another and and I think for I'm still working on the program but we have a lot of local artists set out for this year and something new and challenging that it's really exciting me and we've never done this before so I'm learning as it goes by and uh, yeah, it's it's something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to curate. But now that we have the space, I'm making my dreams come true. Well, the A-Crew Project Gallery is at 517 East 18th Street in the Crossroads District of Kansas City, which you can also find online at the acrewproject.com. And you can also find more of Kevin Umania's work on his website, Kevin dash umana u-m-a-n-a dot com kevin thank you so much for chatting and keep listening to abba thank you so much for having me and i will (laughs) (laughs) and that is it for another week I will post a link to each artist's website on the show's Facebook page, as well as on the Speaking of the Arts page on the KOPN website. So if you have the chance, give everyone a digital visit. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can find at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. As always, my thanks go to my guests today, 
Nathana Premachandra, Doug Cox, Natalie Wiseman and Kevin Omania, and to the guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.